Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Tim Kopeck. Hello, sir. How are you? Doing great, Levy. Thank you. Nice to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. So originally you were in culinary school. Yeah. yeah. I went to a CIA up in Hyde Park um, after uh, going to hotel school and getting out into the field and realizing it's a lot of corporate hours So um, and not a lot of pay. So at least in the beginning. So I uh, looked for options and decided to go into the culinary school was the way to go. And and what was CIA like at that time? Uh, it was great. It was really, you know, it was a fertile ground where everybody, all the students that were there, felt like they were going to succeed. And that was a very good environment. It was the first time I was in an environment like that where everyone was just very positive. And, uh, and for that reason, I, I really enjoyed the experience. I was grateful for it. But uh, you didn't end up going the cooking route. Uh, what changed for you? You know, um, shortly after starting, and I really loved the school, I loved the curriculum, um, I realized that there were a number of students that were just a lot more talented, a lot faster, um, a lot more efficient at, at all the tasks for the cooking. And although I loved it, I realized they were going to be a lot better and uh, in their careers. And I went to, um, actually in my class was Andrew Carmelini, who has proven to do very well, you know, for himself. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, because that's yeah. a lot better than if you'd been like, and in my class was the guy who went on to found Jack in the Box. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, so my entire two years was with him. And, you know, he just worked at a much faster speed. You know, he was operating at a, at a, um, a higher level. Do you ever give him a hard time about that later? No, no, like, no. Yeah. I knew you were destined for nothing. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. I'm, I'm happy to see his success. You know, he is a super talented guy. And, um, you know, I really, you know, I watched him his whole career and he's really been just killing it. Um, but halfway through the curriculum, I realized, you know, I better, you know, I better dig deep here and find out what I'm going to do. And um, the, uh, towards the end of the uh, curriculum came the wine program or the wine um, uh, part of the school. And, you know, halfway through the first class, the instructor said, Tim, would you come up and talk to us at the end of class? And I did. And they said, you know, would you consider tutoring the rest of the students in your class? Because a lot of the kids that go to the culinary school, they come out of high school. So it's a lot of 18, 19 uh, year old kids really not even drinking age. And um, I felt like I had a leg up there, you know, at that point. And I decided I would pursue the, the wine aspect of the culinary field. And, and that's what I did. 
And how did that uh, proceed into a job for you? Well, um, you know, I went to the instructors and I said, you know, what can I do here? This is this is the route that I want to go with my career. And they gave me the advice of um, print out 100 resumes and send it to the top 100 wine destination restaurants in the world. Which, which back then there was probably like 100 well, in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think I struggled. I mean, maybe I come <laughs> yeah, with like, 65 or something like that. You're like 96. <laughs> nine, oh, wait a second. So, Because um, what year was this? This was... Uh, this, we're probably talking about 1990 okay. right now. And um, I thought that was very poor advice, by the way. You know, I was, yeah. I was expecting a gem. Like a connection? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, I paid you guys a lot of tuition. <laughs> yeah, right. And it really kind of wasn't like that. And, you know, it was a pretty short meeting. But I did, in fact, do that. Wrote a cover letter, sent it out everywhere. And there were like four places that responded to me. Uh, one of them was Monarche, uh, which I ended up uh, going to work for, which was, you know, I... I I feel that's like one of the reasons I am successful as I am because I got to learn Burgundy wines, which is very intimidating uh, wines, you know, for uh, someone to learn, try to understand just because the, the nature of the wines are so fickle and, and uh, difficult. But what was the road not taken? I mean, what were the other three? Um, well, I, I um, got an interview with uh, Lydia Bastianich at Felidia. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she was great. I mean, she was very nice to me. She really liked me. Um, I think partially the reason she liked me is because I was willing to work for such a small amount of money. Um, and I was basing that off of what I had made uh, prior to going to the culinary school. And, you know, her eyes kind of lit When up. you were parking cars in the, <laughs> in in the parking that, lot? It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. So, uh, but unfortunately, her husband just recognized that I did not have a lot of Italian wine knowledge. And uh, he kind of squashed that. And, you know, I got to meet Joe Bastiana. And she, he had just finished, I think, being in the um, financial markets and he was looking to do something with restaurants. And that's another really interesting career to see how, you know, successful he had become or has become. And, um, and La Bernardin was another place that I uh, interviewed with, but they were so busy. Um, it was almost impossible to get an interview with them. And it just kind of petered out um, because I w were never able to hook up between me being up in school and coming down. And uh, the fourth place, I can't even recall at this point. But anyway, of sending all those resumes, I got four responses. And Monarche and Daniel Jonas and Drew Nipron were definitely the, the, you know, they were the obvious choice. They, they were, you know, enthusiastic. They saw I wanted to work, and they gave me a chance. So you met with Drew and, and Daniel Jonas in the early 90s and started working with them. And what was that like? Um, it was absolutely fantastic. You know, I wanted to work. I was actually, I was afraid that I w wouldn't succeed so when, when you have that kind of fear, you know, you tend to really dig in and uh, you just work without abandon. You know, you're just going nuts. And um, the restaurant business has a lot of hours to work if you're willing to do it. And, and I was. And I did a little work at Tribeca Grill also. And in the sense of kind of like, you know, checking in wine and inventorying wine and doing wine lists at both places. Uh, you know, uh, making spelling mistakes as you, you know, there's a bunch of different languages, you know, you need to be trying to remember, you know, it's like you saw the labels, like how do you spell Spelese or, you know, is there an umlaut where, you know, that kind of thing. And um, so I just, I just worked real hard and the, the customer base at, at Monarche was just fabulous. I mean, they were great. It was basically catering to Wall Street. They had a lot of money if they recognized a little bit of enthusiasm and they were willing to fund that enthusiasm by, you know, drinking great bottles of wine. And so you kind of started with Burgundy at a time when it wasn't necessarily the coin of the realm. Um, yeah, but I didn't know that. You know, um, I think, you know, I think Daniel Jonas was just so enthusiastic about Burgundy. Um, and by working underneath him, it just seemed like the natural thing to be learning. Um, 
I guess it's easier to learn about California wine because uh, everyone, uh, you know, it's the same language and it's, you know, appellations are very easy or ABAs are very easy to understand. And um, it was very popular in that time. Yeah, it, it was. But that really, you know, we sold a lot of Silverado Chardonnay, but uh, I think that was partially because of price point and people's comfort level with, um, you know, recognizing the name. But by far, we sold a lot more white Burgundy and, and red Burgundy. And Daniel Jonas has always had some pretty strong connections with uh, Burgundians themselves. And who will you meet coming through the door? Yeah, well, he he was great. You know, Daniel really took me under his wing, and we you know we traveled on doing tasting trips in Burgundy, and that was you know maybe after a year of working there that I was able to do that. And you know, we would go for a week, and we would taste at really the great domains. You know, Christophe Rumier, Dominique Lafon, uh, Cocherie, Domaine de la Romanée Conti. I mean, it was just every day with these enormous uh, tasting trips of that caliber, that quality domain. So it was really superb. And, you know, you sort of saw Wall Street during a boom time, and Montrachet was in Tribeca, so it was kind of where a lot of Wall Street people were. Uh, And, you know, you already mentioned that they were a good clientele for you, but one of the things that I've noticed about your career is that you were – especially good at, at building relationships with long-term clients over a number of years, maybe more successful than any SOMI I've ever seen. Um, what do you think? I mean, often those kind of things are just happen naturally, but what do you think about that? What do you think about some of the long-term relationships you've built? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm very appreciative of all those relationships. And although I'm not working on the floors of sommelier anymore, uh, that is the one thing that I miss the most. Um, I don't miss it so much that I'm going back. <laughs> to <work>. but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, unless my kids need to eat, you know, I'll certainly do it. But um, you know, the re- the relationships are really everything. You know, if you if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's very hard to go to work. And every day going to work was meeting new people. Um, and if you hit it off with them, they would they would come back. You know, they would continue to take your recommendations, and you know, a, a friendship would kind of uh, be born from that. And um, I'm a pretty avid golfer. I wish I played better than I do, but I, I play a lot. And a lot of my, my clients, you know, belong to clubs. And, you know, initially it was just going and playing golf with my customers, it's, you know, like because we enjoyed each other. Um, but I think they enjoyed my wine knowledge and that I'm friendly. Um, I enjoyed them because they were passionate about something I was passionate about, you know, where we shared a few things. And and that's really kind of how it started. I never I never envisioned like, okay, you don't have to build, you don't have to build something for the future. It was just, you know, work hard and enjoy some leisure time with people who I enjoyed. Were there many people at that time doing private consulting for private clients? Um, there were actually... In my view, there were not a lot of sommeliers at that time. I mean, I know sommeliers existed, but, you know, there was Roger de Gorn, um, Kevin Zarelli. Kevin Zarelli wasn't really a sommelier at the time. Um, I don't know the year that Michael Skernick started his business, but, you know, he was not what he is today. I mean, he was a small guy who was working hard and trying to build something, and obviously he's built this major, major company now. Um, but there were just not a lot of sommeliers. And and the sommeliers that, um, you know, were seen were a bit more of that intimidating European type, you know, wearing the tuxedo, wearing the Tastaban, uh, using their knowledge, or the stereotype was they would use their knowledge against the customer to show superiority, as opposed to sharing their knowledge to enhance the experience, you know, of the uh, of the diner. And there was, the trend just started to change. I think my timing is a lot of 
the reason that I'm successful now is um, people were open and they were looking forward to people being friendly with wine knowledge and not using overly complicated terms. And, and that's kind of the way I speak about wine. And um, it, it just worked well. I mean, it was a lot of things, but timing is certainly a very important part of uh, my career. Did you feel like it was less competitive back then in terms of other sommeliers? Yeah, very much so. There, um, but but also I didn't have that like I didn't have that edge like you know I need to crush this or I need you know I need to I need to beat everybody. It, it wasn't like that. You know there were there were not that many places, and I didn't. To be honest, I really didn't see the trend occurring. I didn't see um, you know the publications like you know the Wine Spectator. Um, I didn't realize that they would be as important as they were. I just thought like, okay, here's, you know, a magazine and they're showing pictures of famous winemakers and they're traveling to those regions and that's kind of interesting. It's a good coffee table kind of publication. Um, but now I look 20 years later and I see how many publications there are on wine, travel, food, you know, um, how important Michelin Guide is, although Michelin Guide's been around for a super long time. But um you know, how much of a, it's more of a lifestyle thing today uh, than it was 20 something years ago when I started, I feel. And, you know, you mentioned a wine spectator and you were awarded, uh, or Montrachet was awarded while you were working there at the Grand Award. Yeah. And how did that affect things at the restaurant at the yeah. time? Well, it, it was amazing. Um, it was an incredibly powerful um award that the that the restaurant won and i would say probably the most influential publications for genuinely generating business for the restaurants were the new york times obviously you know if you got a three-star review that was really fabulous gourmet was very important because um people tend to they, they tend to hold on to that uh, publication for a long time um or they did um, hold on to it for a long time. So when they were visiting New York, they would review it. So, and, and they would go to those restaurants and then, um, nothing more powerful than the wine spectator. Cause there you had a lot of people coming uh, from the country, but also from around the world. And usually when they were coming, they were wine enthusiasts and they were, and they were ready to spend. So it was very, very impactful. Do you think that, uh, later that started a trend of other people saying like, Hey, I want a piece of that action. Like, let's also have a great pig wine list. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the biggest thing that has affected, uh, having these tremendous wine lists is really when auctions came to New York. Um, when, when the auction companies wanted to set up shop, uh, the reason they were not doing it in the past is because it was illegal. You know, the, the, um, the government didn't allow it to happen. So that's why they were occurring out in Chicago and they were occurring out in California so um, once they decided they were going to allow the companies back into New York to do this, everyone went up in arms because, as you know, there's uh, on-premise licenses and off-premise licenses. So um, the off-premise uh, or the retailers were basically like, hey, you know, this is unfair. We don't want the auction companies coming here. They're going to take our business from us. So uh, the government said, okay, you know, you're kind of right. Um, we're going to make auction companies pair with retailers that have been in business for at least 10 years. So then on-premise uh, places like restaurants said, wait, that's not fair. You know, why, why are these guys in on the action and we're not? So the government said, you know what, you're right. Um, you can buy wine uh, from uh, private collections yourself to put onto your wine list. And, and that is really what spurred the really tremendously large wine list. Um, and that was really the foundation of what Veritas uh, had done. And Veritas took the city by storm. I mean, it was incredible. Um, when I went to work there in 99, um, they were selling amazing bottles hand over fist, you know, for a really long time. And, 
Um, I think, you know, a lot of people saw what was going on. They were enamored by it. But a lot of people said, you know what, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> you know, I know some people with big collections and they took investors themselves. And, you know, pretty much immediately, you know, a year or two later, there was a lot of competition. People building these enormous wine lists under the same kind of principle that we had done at Veritas. And how did the Veritas situation come about for you? I mean, uh, you weren't there right at the beginning. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was a, I, I worked with a guy named Roger Black, uh, who's from New Jersey. Uh, he had went and I think he was working as maybe a, a floor manager or maitre d'. And he told me he was going, he, that he was there. And I said, oh, you know, I hear a lot of great things. Tell me about it. And he said, oh, you know, we're looking for a wine director. Um, you know, I'm happy to throw your hat in the ring if you like. And I said, yeah, yeah, please do. You know, I was nervous and I had hesitation, but I was like, it was just talking to a friend. I said, yeah, please do that. And, uh, you know, he called me a few hours later. He said, you know, can you be in Midtown tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Uh, for a meeting with all the owners? He called you a few hours later. Yeah, a few hours later. Oh. So, yeah, um, so, you know, I, I view that as a good sign. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I view that, the, you know, they were, would be interested in me. And, you know, at that point, I, you know, it was already nine years working at Monarche. And, you know, I knew all the clientele that, you know, they would want, that they would be sharing at that time. So, um you know, the next the next morning I went, we had a meeting, they made an offer, we did a little negotiation, and I was hired, you know, and basically just a couple of weeks later, I started there, and it was just another incredible run. You know, it was like rejuvenated, um, you know, my, my career, I felt like, because Monarche was so good to me, you know, and I learned so much, and uh, now at Veritas, I had the opportunity to be, you know, the top guy, and that's obviously very good for your career, um, and we had another, you know, it was another amazing run on Wall Street, and... Um, um, we had really kind of like the world coming and drinking all these great bottles. And who were those collectors that you helped put that collection together with? Well, um, Steve Erlin uh, was a really great collector, and uh, Park B. Smith uh, were the two um, the, the two guys that contributed wine uh, to the to the wine list. And there were two other partners, Gino Diaferia and Scott Bryan, who was a chef. So. And what were some of those people like? I mean, Steve Erlin has passed away, so I think a lot of people haven't had a chance to meet him. But what was he like in person? Yeah, well, actually, all four of these gentlemen were, you couldn't get more different people. <laughs> I mean, you know, even though they all were partners together, um, you know, they all loved wine, but they were um, quite unique and different characters. And maybe the most so was Steve Erlin, who was just this larger-than-life, vivacious, intense uh Gourmand, really. Uh, I would say he was probably a greater lover of food than he was of wine, and he really loved wine. Most people know him for the wine, but, you know, he would be very excited about, you know, having Robochon's food in Paris, um, uh, getting great Reggiano Parmesan, you know, from Italy, um, having hot dogs down downtown, uh, or from... Uh, he had a few different places that he really loved hot dogs. Um, but he really loved a, a, a lot of uh, this food, and he loved to share that information. And, you know, often at a great a great expense of his own, he would share, you know, these these stories and, and food, but also wine. And what was his specialty in terms of the wine cellar? Um, well, basically, he and uh, Park Smith, they had a lot of similar wines, but they kind of made an agreement early on that, you know, okay, you take Bordeaux, I'll take Burgundy, you know, you take Australia, I'll take Italy, that kind of thing. So although they both share a lot of the same wine, uh, not all that wine came uh, to, the, to the restaurant. They kind of broke it down. And Steve was um, heavy into Burgundy. Um, but he, again, he loved many things, but he was mostly Burgundy that he was um, 
uh, adding to the list, and, and some Bordeaux. Uh, Park Smith, a tremendous amount of Bordeaux, and uh, Park Smith loved Chateauneuf de Pop or the Rhone wines. So um, those are kind of like the major foundations, I'd say. And what's Park like? Park is very different than Steve Lynn. Um, very, um, very proper, very reserved, um, always very well-dressed, uh, press suits, um, well-groomed. I mean, I think, I don't know if the story was true, but the partners told me he would get his uh, haircut six days a week. Um, but I just think there was a barber uh, who worked in his office building and he was, you know, never a hair out of place. Uh, very conservative, um, kind of the opposite of, of Steve, where Steve looked like he basically just got off of a Harley. You know, he would wear jeans, he'd wear um, a, a wife beater for a t-shirt, uh, and he would be in this restaurant, you know, sharing thousands and thousands of dollars worth of uh, wine and food with people. And he, you know, people, when they first walked by, would, you know, in some cases be fearful of him. He kind of looked like that. So they were quite different. And how did those two guys meet? I mean, what, what was the bridge between? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question because when you saw the two of them, they couldn't be more different. But um, they both claimed to be best friends with Robert Parker, the you know the world's most influential wine critic. And um, that whenever either of them heard the other one say that he was their best friend, they would, you know they would ignore it, or you know they would have selective hearing uh, because you know they the one thing about Parker. Um, you know, he's a self-made man, which is very impressive. Um, but he is also a real lover of uh, food, you know. And I think that was kind of like the common bond. Um, definitely between him and uh, Steve. And um, I think the wine was the bond between Park and Parker. It's almost like uh, Park and, and Steve kind of personified different aspects of Parker's own personality. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know? yeah. I mean, I never looked at it that way, but... Um, you know, I saw the way, you know, working there for many years, I got to uh, meet Parker a number of times, and I saw the way that they celebrated life, these guys. And it was almost never the three of them all together. They were, um, you know, separate relationships. But the conviviality and, you know, the travel, the great uh, food and great wine. I mean, you know, Robert Parker, he's a very, very passionate guy about wine. And um, a lot of people agree with him, obviously. That's why he's as powerful as he is. But not everybody agrees with him but um if you meet him you realize he's just you know just a just a really nice person who's genuinely passionate about what he does so i really respect that about him and what was it like working with scott bryan back then um scott you know scott was again very different from both steve and, and park um you know he came from kind of the boston area you know very kind of working class um background, as I understand, uh, but a very talented uh, chef. He would call himself a very good cook, more so than a chef, but um, he was hardworking. Uh, he was very shrewd. And one of the things I respected a lot about him, uh, besides him actually having some knowledge about wine, because although the industry loves to say that chefs know wine so well and respect wine, the most of them don't know anything at all, I find. And... Um, if any of them are listening to this, they'll probably not like that comment at all. But, <laughs> you know, I've, I've met a lot. A lot don't know. Anyone who's looking in the mirror will probably agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, Scott actually did, you know, he did like wine. He never pretended that he knew everything. But, you know, he loved Italian wine. He loved Burgundy. He bought them himself, you know, so he had a cellar. And um, one of the things that I was getting, uh, the point that I was trying to make before that I respect a lot about Scott is that every once in a while, every 10 days, 15 days, 20 days, uh, you would go into the kitchen instead of him expediting uh, the food for dinner that night, he would be working one of the stations. 
you know, sautéing food or doing gar manger or whatever. And uh, it was difficult for him to do that. You know, he didn't have to do that. He, it's much easier for him to stay on the other side and just expedite, expedite and coordinate. So I would say to him, Scott, why are you doing that? You know, you don't need to do that. There are guys that, you know, you pay to do that kind of thing. And uh, he said, you know, every once in a while you need your ass kicked to remind you, you know, you know to keep you sharp, to remind you who you are. And, uh, and he would subject himself to that periodically. And, um, you know, a lot of chefs can cook, obviously, but not a lot of them are actually doing the cooking. Um, and I think you would agree with that when you working in restaurants. That's what you see. Yeah, I mean, I remember it being shocking when I first realized that, though. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, like, oh, wait. Oh, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it really, I, I mean, I was taken aback a little bit. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh okay. All yeah. right. Well, you know, the, the perception of, of, of people is, uh, the perception of customers is that the chef is physically making every single dish, and it's just not true. Um, if you go to Masa, Masa is, is cooking, um, but he does have support. Um and and in fairness, I think you know a lot of the famous chefs genuinely know how to cook well. Um, but I've also seen when a chef is not expediting, where they're not you know standing at the center and coordinating everything, um, the kitchen doesn't run as well, and I find that the food usually doesn't come out as well. So really, the strength of the chef is having the knowledge of of um, making all those dishes, but knowing timing, understanding timing. You know, know when to light a fire underneath a certain employee to make kind of everything come together. So. And I guess we should add to this, because I know this about you, but others may not, that you also really enjoy uh, dining and restaurants and food. And you're someone that, you know, really makes a point of 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 going to some of the great restaurants of the world whenever possible to see what they're doing, to check it out, but also just to have a good time, just to have a nice meal. Um, yeah, it's true. I'm, you know, I wish I ate a little bit less, to be honest. <laughs> you know, the combination of eating well and drinking well. Uh, I wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> it takes its toll. But... Uh, you know, it's true. I, I love to travel, and I'll do it whenever I can. You know, I travel a lot right now, but um, I could easily cut back my travel schedule by half. But I enjoy traveling. I want to go. And, you know, I like uh, meeting my customers from around the world, really anywhere in the world, uh, you know, if the opportunity presents itself. So, you know, going to New Zealand, going to Hong Kong, going to the Philippines, um, going to Spain, Italy, France, I'll do that. And it's often a lot of fun. It's good relationship building. But um, uh, one of the nice things with catering to um, clientele um, that I have had over all this time, uh, usually they have very good taste. So they don't want to just go and eat McDonald's to fill in a meal. You know, the the, the travel schedule is usually um, based entirely around great dining experiences. So, And, you know, I remember back... Uh, earlier in your career, I remember you told me that you had traveled to Burgundy pretty much on your your only vacation to go uh, on a bike tour. Yeah, yeah. It was um, um, I had just started working at Monarchet for maybe a year or two, and my now ex wife uh, was just finished pharmacy school, so she had took her uh, her her boards to see if she would pass and be you know a licensed pharmacist. Um, but there's a waiting period there. So we kind of took this opportunity where for an entire month we were going to ride our bicycles from Dijon to basically Monaco, to Nice. And it was an amazing experience. My sister and brother-in-law, they came with us for the first two weeks. And we really didn't have a major plan. We just bought bicycles with us. We had panniers. We didn't have a support um, van with us. We just carried everything ourselves, And it was 
an amazing, amazing experience. Um, really enjoyable. Meet, you know, A, meeting um, a lot of the winemakers, um, but just the sights, the sounds, the smells of travel, you know, which you don't get when you get in a train or in a car. And it was remarkable. Um, but I will say very challenging when it came to any hills or mountains, which is something we really didn't take into account. And uh, we didn't really train either, you know, for, for the trip. But um, it was one of the great things that I've done, I think, in my life. Very enjoyable. Your wife was like, let's go see the Grand Cruise. And you're like, I don't know. It starts to slope up there. <laughs> no, it was funny. You know, I, I met um, uh, the Marquis d'Angeville one morning at, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we had an invitation for all four people. And uh, when, when we woke up, they all looked at me like, no way am I, you know, getting up. Because, you know, we had a ride to get to Volney. And I think we were in Huy saint georges So it was, you know, it was a hefty, hefty ride. And they were like, no, no thanks, I'll pass. And, uh, um it, 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 was, it was a great tasting. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know how to say this, uh, he gave me a bottle of wine after tasting, just, you know, seeing that I made an effort. And uh, it was like day number one or day number two of the trip. I'm like, you know, I, I love this wine. I think he gave me a um, 1990 um, Côte d'Uc. Uh, Volnay, which was a great bottle. I knew ni already 90s, you know, great vintage. And I thought to myself, you know, now I need to ride for like 28 more days with this bottle in my paniers, you know, because it would be sacrilege to pull the cork already. So I thought you were going to say you uh, brought brought in your bag the, the the bottle from the 20s that you opened up once when I was around. Oh, yeah. Because no, no. you opened up a Dangeville uh, Volnay. Like 1929, I think. Yeah. One, uh, yeah. 22. I mean, these these Volnays, you know, um, they really need a lot of age is what I find. And when you have them like today from the seventies or the sixties, uh, you can go back further, but they're like magical, you know, magical wines. And when you drink them when they're very young with five years or 10 years, although they taste good, they don't, they, uh, they they're not magical the way they are with, you know, 20 or 30 years age to them or more. So, so I mean, what happened with Veritas in terms of the reception in the market once you, uh, started taking the reins? Um, well, um, I felt like, you know, I, I added some structure to what was going on uh, at Veritas when I first came because um, they were just so successful and uh, um, people were just like running around like crazy. And there were definitely good sommeliers there, but they immediately, you know, they like took a back seat to me when I came in, which I found odd because I was always the second guy, you know, and, and I didn't, you know, it was a little bit, I felt a little bit unusual. Um, but one of the nice things is that a lot of my clientele from Monarche followed me and when they came in, they came in to help support me. And, you know, one of my great customer friends is, uh, Don Stott and, uh, Don came and he gathered some of his friends and they said, okay, you know, let's welcome Tim to the new place. Let's put a party of eight together and let's go in and let's spend some money. Now he didn't tell me that, but they came in and, um, it was chaotic. I mean, already we were incredibly busy and he just started ordering massive amount of crazy wines and the entire staff saw what was going on and they thought it was, you know, they kind of looked at me like I'm the one that did that. You know, I didn't do it. Don, right, right, but, right. You called up Don and you're like, Don, I got an idea for you. Yeah, no, right. Here's, I mean, here's how you're going to spend your night today. Exactly. Don was just being Don. He was just being amazing and supporting a friend and he completely let it rip. But, um, uh, it was incredibly difficult to serve because it was, it was overwhelming. But again, the staff, I think they looked at me like, wow, this guy has the ability to bring in big customers. And, you know, I guess to a degree it was true, but I, I didn't realize that until kind of that moment or maybe even shortly thereafter. 
And you did win the Grand Award again there at Veritas. Yeah, yeah. Shortly after starting, um, the list was big already. And um, it was, you know, that time of year you submit the list. We submitted. Uh, we had the interview with, you know, the important people that work there. Uh, I can't remember if it was Molesworth or Tom Matthews or maybe both. And um, I was fortunate. You know, the second place I worked was the second Grand Award, uh, you know, granted, you know, while I worked there. So that was very good for the resume. And what were the logistics like of just dealing with that much wine? I mean, one of the things that I realized in the late 90s was that it seemed like there wasn't a, a strong template like there is now for running a large list. Like there wasn't the software and, oh, we're going to have a seller guy putting stuff away. And the systems were more developing than developed. Yeah. There was, there was a, uh, a gentleman that helped set up Veritas named Dan Perlman. And Dan, he really, you know, provided the first bit of structure uh, uh, in setting up that wine list and setting up the wine room and trying to organize things. And uh, he didn't last uh, very long there. I don't know if he was paid as a consultant or, or, or what, but um, I credit him with like kind of getting the thing started that way. But there was so much enthusiasm and there were so many great wine sales occurring immediately that Steve Berlin and Park Smith just started sending massive amounts of more wine down there. And you're right, we weren't really ready. Like, we didn't have proper systems set up. And wine was coming in and being sold. And we're, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to um, remember or we're trying to categorize, you know, who, which wine belonged to who. How much did we get it for? They were even sending wine down initially without pricing uh, included on it. So um, it was challenging. You know, one of the things that you really are known for amongst people who work with you there, um, one of the things they mentioned is that the way that you really would build long-lasting relationships that that uh, went beyond the floor. That, as you mentioned, that you shared uh, golf with, with people, but then you also started... Uh, slowly to do more and more private consulting, which eventually took you to Asia. And how did that all kind of come together in in the way it happened? Yeah, um, well, I think uh, while it was happening, I didn't realize it was happening to start with. I mean, I knew I had these relationships. Guys were asking me about wine, um, and I started assisting building their collections. But kind of like a big break for me was uh, one of my friends who was a customer, Jonathan Sloan, he runs a, a company called CLSA uh, Worldwide, and it's based in Hong Kong. He invited me back in 2005, 2006 to come to Hong Kong to speak about wine to a financial forum uh, for his company. And, uh, you know, a lot of people in his company were like, you know, why are we having a sommelier from New York coming and speaking at a financial forum? It doesn't make sense. Um, but he said, you know, trust me, you know, that I think this is something that's of interest. And I went and spoke at that forum and it was a huge success. Uh, a lot of the people that were at that financial forum, it's, you know, it's what they really wanted to hear. They were going to the financial forum because they needed to, to come back with more information, you know, to help their hedge funds or whatever. But the whole lifestyle and wine was very interesting to them. And it was really at that time that I got to meet, um, a lot of tycoons in Hong Kong and, um, a number of them end up becoming, you know, clients of mine, you know, in me assisting, helping them build their collections. And what was that milieu like? Because I think here we allude to it a lot in the States, you know, ah, the Asian market, but there's not a lot of firsthand knowledge of what it's actually like. Yeah, it's very interesting because when I talk to a lot of people who are in the business and I even hear them say things like what I hear on the press when they say, oh, you know, China's going to drink up all our great wine or um, we're not going to be able to get Grand Cru Burgundy anymore. 
And um, I'm surprised by that because when, uh, when I first went, I didn't know what to expect. You know, at the time I was hearing that the Chinese uh, mix Coca-Cola with their Petrus. That's and, what I used to hear. Yeah, I used yeah. to hear that Quintessa and Coke was a big drink in yeah, Hong Kong. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and you know, I heard that kind of thing. So I was, I really didn't know what to expect. And the people I met, um, they were actually already very wine savvy people. But what they were wine savvy in mostly was in Bordeaux, and more specifically Pomerol. And I knew Bordeaux at the time, but you don't really know Pomerol because Pomerol is so much more expensive, you know, especially when you're talking about the age wines, uh, you know, 82s and 75s and 70s and, uh, and then going back, you know, into 60s. Um, so these guys really knew those wines well. And I realized that they were sophisticated. Um, they were much more sophisticated about fine food than I felt a lot of people were here in the States. And uh, at that time, they were just becoming interested in Burgundy. And uh, one of one of my um, friends is one of the greatest connoisseurs that I that I know in the world, who's located in Hong Kong. And uh, there were a lot of people that wanted to be close with him, and and they kind of viewed me as an opportunity to get closer to him with my knowledge in Burgundy. So they you know they started asking information, they started asking me to acquire wines or look for wines for them, and and you know the relationship was forged kind of right there. Because then they could say like, "Hey, do you want to have a dinner party at my house with that gentleman?" Because we're we're having a Burgundy yeah. party. It's it, 100 correct, and you know, um, with Facebook and uh, social media now, you get to see when your friends or your foes or whatever uh, are drinking great bottles of wine because often they post that picture. Uh, and you know, there are truly remarkable bottles of wine that are being consumed, you know, for people's birthday or for uh, you know some special holiday. But in Hong Kong, this is happening like. Five, six, seven nights a week. I mean, when I'm there, I can in one week drink more great bottles of wine than in an entire year in in New York. It's, it's just remarkable. Uh, I'm not saying every single person in Hong Kong does that, but the people that I know are doing that every almost every single night. They're drinking monumental or epic bottles of wine. And what is the sommelier scene there that you see when you go to these restaurants? Um, when when I first started going in like 05 or 06, um, there were sommeliers, but I didn't really feel like anyone had a, a great amount of knowledge. They basically just knew how to you know handle wine, present wine, decant wine. Um, but uh, now that's changed a lot. I think there's you know there's more talent out there. One of the problems with being a sommelier in Hong Kong, and and I want to make the different differentiation between Hong Kong and China. Although Hong Kong is part of China, it's a very different market than mainland China. Um, there are a lot of people buying a lot of great wines in mainland China, but Hong Kong has been sophisticated for a very, very long period of time. And I kind of view them as like two different countries for that reason. Um, but one of the problems in working in Hong Kong as a sommelier is you have to work a lot. Like sommeliers, I think they work a lot in America. Uh, you have to do it even more in Hong Kong and you have to do it for substantially less money because uh, there's a huge labor force there. And if uh, you don't want the job, no problem, they'll hire someone else that will. So, you know, you're making about, I think it's about 75% of the salary that you would if you were in either, you know, San Francisco or New York or Chicago. And, um, and you know, you're working six days a week, which is, you know, not fun. So, and, and that's the standard. That's not like, you know, you're stretching because it's holiday time. So um, I, feel like, I feel like there's more knowledgeable sommeliers there today. Um, um, but I don't feel at the same level as the cities that I mentioned in New York. I think we're stronger here. And you said something to me once, which was interesting, which was that you felt in Hong Kong, they started with the very finest 
great wines of the world and then kind of work their way down. Yeah, it's true. Uh, at least my client base or the guys that I know, you know, when they, they again, they already had good sellers and quite substantial sellers, but mostly in Bordeaux. When they started getting excited about Burgundy, you know, they would start with Domaine de la Romaniconti and Henri Jaillet. You know, and they would argue that, you know, one is better than the other, or even though they knew Jaé wines were more expensive, they didn't like them, so they wouldn't drink them. And, you know, these conversations would be going on like five nights a week, <laughs> you know, and in the daytime, they'd be making telephone calls and asking, you know, well, what's your opinion? You know, what do you think about those wines? Uh, you know, I love 90, but what do you think about 89? Or um, So uh, it's kind of after that point, because it's easy to go out and buy Domaine de la Romani Conti. You just need a lot of money, you know, um, but... It was after that that they started asking about, you know, Dujac or Freddie Mounier or Rumier. And, and so they would start, I can't even say those are lower quality wines. They're not, but they start to trickle down uh, that way. And they never get down as far as village wines. They really don't care about village wines there. Um, but they are interested in, you know, vintages and how the wines are showing at a given time. And, you know, anyone who's listening that knows about Burgundy, even great wines, you know, they're fickle. So, you know, you might, you might get that night where it's not showing well. And that's frustrating. You know, you have to be patient. You have to explain, um, or you, you have to be a masochist. Because they are often more fickle than Bordeaux. Yeah. So, so was that a learning curve? Uh, yeah. I mean, interestingly, Steve Verlin, who loved Burgundy, he always used to say to me, um, uh, you're, you're, a, you're a sympathizer, you're a Burgundy sympathizer, uh, because, you know, whenever there's a great wine that you think is going to be great, it doesn't show well. Instead of you saying that wine's not good, I would always be making excuses that it's in a dumb stage or, it's, you know, too young or, or what have you. And probably the truth lies in between, but you know, if, if you're a great lover of Burgundy and, and maybe even the same thing with, uh, Piedmont wines, um, there are good periods where the wines are showing and then there are kind of more awkward periods. I was thinking that like the worst thing you could do as a business model would be serve old Barolo and old Rhone whites in a restaurant, but with no food. Just a wine bar with like 60s Barolo and like 80s Rhone white and just like see what happens. Like nothing else on the list. Just yeah. like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's going to be showing. Maybe not. You know what I mean? I think that bot model would only work for like the, the new generation of sommeliers. Yeah, yeah, like five people. Because other people would be like, I need some food with this. Oh, you don't have food? Oh, okay. Like, you know, because those are both wines where you got to decant yeah. and maybe sit for a while, a few hours sometimes, maybe yeah. six hours and like let it come back. And, yeah. You know, it's just, it's not really workable for a, a fast-paced restaurant Manhattan environment. Yeah, impossible. So speaking of Manhattan restaurants, I mean, how have you seen them change? I feel, in a way, Veritas kind of set a standard for casualization of the wine service. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that continue on? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say, you know, every once in a while we have an economic crisis in New York. You know, Wall Street tanks, and it really wipes out a lot of restaurants. And that probably is a good thing. I mean, I never enjoyed it when it was happening, but you know, when people started asking for you know forty five dollars for a cut of meat or something, and other places are selling it for twenty eight dollars, um, you start to say, okay, th things are becoming excessive, and it's really those super high end places that almost get knocked out first, uh, and and usually for good cause because you know they tend to maybe rest on their laurels or or what have you, but um, so there's always like it seems like every ten years. 
the, you know, a lot of places get wiped out just for economic reasons. Um, but it does seem now that there are a lot of sommeliers, there are a lot of wine directors in a lot of different kind of places, even not fancy uh, dining places, they have this. And, you know, with varying degrees of knowledge and professionalism also, I will say. Um, but it, it does seem that, um, you know, it's, it's more fashionable these days. It's more accepted and people are expecting to drink wine when they go out as opposed to, you know, the... Um, the novelty of drinking wine. And I guess one thing I would ask you, um, you know, w one of the things I always admired that you did really early at Veritas is that you started striking out the labels with a pen uh, of used bottles because you were concerned about those bottles making it back, having been refilled as fakes. What do you think about the development of fakes in the market, either in the United States or in Asia or in the world? Um it seems like we need another six hours to talk <laughs> about that subject. I mean, that is, you know, it's such a heavily laden question that you ask. But, um, you know, fake wine exists and you can bury your head in the sand and make believe it doesn't in your cellar. But, you know, if you bought wine over the last 20 years, um, you know, you, you are likely to end up having um, some fake wines in your collection. That's what happens. Um, just from, you know, some bad people doing some bad things. And, um you know, it is good when people are destroying good bottles afterwards, um, but it, it's such a complex uh, issue, and 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 there's been so much damage done um, to the market. Uh, and and really, what surprises me more than anything else is that um, wine pricing hasn't fallen more because of it. Because you know, wine prices are pretty astronomical right now. Does and that surprise you how high it really has gone? Yeah. The ceiling for wine yeah, prices. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I remember uh, in the early days at Monarchet, and everyone has these stories. So you know, I apologize for doing this, but um, we needed sixty-one Petrus uh, uh, for a dinner. We needed three bottles, and we only had uh, two. I think it was. So we called one of our customers and we asked to buy one of his bottles. And he was very nice, and he um, he sold it to us for a thousand dollars. And I was just blown away that a bottle of wine can cost a thousand dollars. That was like in '93, you know. I was just I couldn't believe it that someone would spend so much money on a bottle of wine. And uh, now, I mean, you can't buy a first growth Bordeaux, you know, from a decent vintage, you know, even upon release. Upon for, release for for, 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 that. for yeah. that, you know, I mean, what's you know. Uh, 2010 Latour is trading like 20,000 a case. That wine is like, you know, it just hit the shores. It's just remarkable. So, um, and what you're talking about is a 20 year period of time, 93 to 2013. And yeah. everything is different. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, even, even like Great Burgundies now, or just, you know, Rumier, which are wines that I really love, you know, Bun Mar, um, 2010, which is one of his famous wines, which he makes a fair amount of, you know, at best, if you find it in the marketplace, 800 bucks a bottle now. So you're basically spending 10 grand to buy a wine that, you know, you can drink them earlier than, than Bordeaux, but, you know, you really should still be waiting, you know, 15 years to drink that. That's, that's a ridiculous amount of money. And, you know, some have blamed the the global wine market for that and the, the rise of... Uh, you know, financial money into the market. But where do we see uh, the Asian market going next? I mean, because that is in some ways the $64 million question yep. in terms of wine prices. I mean, are they going to go into the Rhone? Have they already gone into the Rhone? Are they going to go into Italy? What happens next in Asia? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and I wish I really did know the answer. I, I don't know. I could tell you what I think. Um, and, and by the way, prior to China, 
prior to Asia being the hot market, um, everyone was very fearful that Russia was going to buy all the great wines. And and that, that was pretty short-lived, but that's what everyone always used to say whenever wine prices went up. Oh, the Russians are buying everything. Uh, I remember it was the Japanese for like uh, two years. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, remember that time? Yeah, yeah. Like when Rising Sun came out and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, So um, so So then uh, everyone's seeing or everyone now believes that China is buying up all the great wines. The truth is that a lot of that business is occurring in Hong Kong and um, it's a feeder for a lot of different markets and mainly China. There's a reason that you don't see all the auction companies going to China to do their auctions. It's incredibly difficult. There's a lot of red tape, uh, very bureaucratic, and there's a 55% tax on wine sales. Whereas in Hong Kong, there's zero tax on wine sales. So almost everyone is selling their wine in Hong Kong itself. And then the wine is being fed out to either the rest of Asia or to mainland or actually a lot of wine even comes back to America, which not everybody knows. Um, so what I see in mainland China, because I'm also interested in, in you know, what wine sell and, you know, can I get an angle on this? And, and what it appears is because there's 1.4 billion people in that country, even if you get a very small percentage of people buying wine, you know, it's going to have a big impact. Um, but what it appears to be the big market there are very inexpensive wines. Wines that cost, you know, one euro, one and a half euro to make in, in France um, or, you know, a dollar or two dollars in, in uh, California and then packaging and sending over there. And, and then the wines are still translating to like, you know, 18 or 20 dollars uh, U.S. per bottle, even though they cost that low, just because of shipping and taxing and, and things like that. So, in, at least in the next few years, the real big shift might actually be at the very low end of the market. Well, I mean, if, if, you, if you're a smart business person, you would be much more interested in selling large volumes of low-margin wine. You'll, you'll make a lot more money in the long run, as opposed to just going and getting bottles of Romane Conti and selling them for, you know, whatever, uh, 50% more than what you got. You know, you'd much rather be uh, in the large quantity business. So I think, you know, there's, there's, it's kind of a split market. People look at it that way. Some people want to sell fancy wines to rich people and that's what all the press want to write about. But smart business people are trying to figure out how do we get more people drinking wine period? And it's really entry level wines. How can you make good entry level wine for, for a mass market? That's how you'll, you'll make, you'll make it big. So one thing that has happened over the course of your career in terms of making it big, although at the other end of the spectrum often, is that Burgundy really took over from Bordeaux, and we've alluded to it a few times in this interview already, but why do you think it happened that in many ways Burgundy became the blue chip gold standard uh, where when we started Bordeaux had been? Um, I think I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier, uh, to be honest. I mean, I prefer the wines of Burgundy, and... Uh, you know, uh, I have a guilty pleasure of drinking, you know, uh, uh, H. Bordeaux sometimes. But um, I think probably a lot feeds into the way wine is handled and transported now. I think if you w went back even into the 60s or 70s, you know, a lot of wine was coming over to America, uh, not in refrigerated containers, and, and wines were being damaged. Even Bordeaux wines were being damaged. But Burgundy wines are more delicate. Uh, they're more uh, fragile. Uh, and I think that they would, they were suffering a lot from that kind of poor storage and, and poor transportation. And once that people have started to wake up to realize actually, Hey, this is very important. I think we're getting better quality wines in the market. Um, modern technology has made less horrendous vintages everywhere in the world. Right. Um, 
And the, I think one of the reasons that Bordeaux did have such a stronghold um, is it's a more sturdy wine and also it's a lot more of it. You know, all of these, you know, famous classified uh, chateaux, they're making anywhere between, say, 15,000 and 40,000 cases of wine. You know, a good Burgundy uh, from a Grand Cru, they might only be making, say, 400 cases or, you know, 800 cases or 125 cases. So there's less less wine in the marketplace for you to stumble into. But um, Burgundy wines, are, are they're more friendly. They're, they're friendly for food. They're friendly even when you don't have food. Bordeaux, when they were young, uh, tended to be more robust, more tannic, more substantial, um, and uh, maybe... I can't even say better suited for food, but better suited for certain foods. I just think Burgundy wines are more delicate and more easy on the palate. And what would you say about the change in generations with sommeliers in New York? I mean, I I imagine that, you know, a few of the younger people coming up. Do you see a different character, the same character, shared things, different things from what you saw when you first were uh, starting your own career? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, What I saw... um, but when I really started to care what other sommeliers were doing is when I was in a position of hiring sommeliers, you know, who kind of had to represent what, you know, I was responsible for. And what I had found is that sommeliers that were very knowledgeable, that had a lot of experience, were, were actually the more difficult uh, people to hire because they had very strong opinions and they were very kind of set in their ways. Then I would hire sommeliers that were just very enthusiastic, that had some knowledge, but not amazing knowledge. And, and th- those guys always worked out better. Uh, and I came to the realization that enthusiasm is far more important than wine knowledge. Because if, I'm, if you're just going to sit back and say, oh, yeah, that wine is good, but it's not as good as this, like that's not interesting for a customer to hear. So um, if a customer asks a sommelier a, a, a question about a wine and he says, oh, yeah, well, that, that's, that's one of my favorite wines. You know, that's a region that I used to go with my family when we were kids. When we would go to the beach, we would stop there and we would load up the car with that wine. You know, that's an exciting story for a consumer. So what I see today is I see, um, I see a lot of young, enthusiastic people, uh, men and women, a lot more women in the industry now than uh, I feel than uh, when I started. And uh, I think the big difference is that there's not as much money being spent on bottles of wine out dining today as there was, you know, even 10 years ago. And people have uh, end up adopting lesser known regions, you know, this whole phenomenon with natural wines, wines from the Jura, you know, no one cared about those wines uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. You can even ask the importers. Um, And now they're the rage. They're highly allocated. They're very difficult to get, you know, these wines, you know, Loire Valley wines or, you know, uh, small Appalachian Rhone wines um, are are now in vogue. So I think that these young, enthusiastic sommeliers have adopted those kinds of wines because they're not expensive. They are unique. They're interesting. They're individualistic. And um, they're sharing their passion with their customers with those types of things. I wonder if we could talk a bit about a few of the people that you did hire. Um, Because, you know, some of them have gone on to really cool things in their own right. Uh, you had Yoshi Takamura working for you. You had Patrick Capiello working for you. I, I believe you had a hand in hiring Ruben Sanz Romero. What are some of these people like? You know, Eric Zillier also. Who's, Eric Zillier yeah, as well. Another very talented guy. Um, yeah, they've all done really well. I mean, all the, all the guys that have worked you know, with me or under me, uh, Ned Goodwin, who's the only MW in Japan right now, is from Australia. He, um, he, you know, he worked for me also. Um, they were all, you know, they're all unique individuals. Um, 
Yoshi Takamura was just like an unbelievable resource of knowledge, but also the, the most intense work, work ethic I've ever experienced. He can literally do the work of like three men. And um, fortunately, he was very close and friendly with Patrick Capiello and um, Patrick adopted a lot of his work ethic from Yoshi, which was very fortunate for me because um, it ended up making Patrick super strong. But I will say all the people that you mentioned, uh, the common denominator is that they were all really passionate about great wine. And, um, you know, I guess I've hired people who, whose names we haven't mentioned that just, are, you know, they're not so interesting because they just didn't, you know, they didn't have that same intensity about them. But all these guys that you have mentioned, um, we've actually had kind of long working relationships with just out of kind of mutual respect and being able to do a great job. And I guess you're in a unique position to actually know uh, quite well a number of the, what I would say, the hidden uh, wine consumers of New York, which are really visible to sommiers, but often very private individuals in their own right, because uh, they may be a wealthy collector or they may just be super interested in wine. Um, but you see them as, as consumers at your restaurant, whereas uh, when people read articles, they, they read your name, but not theirs. Yeah. Uh, but they facilitate a lot of what happens at the restaurant through their own purchasing. So I wonder if certain have stood out that you might care to share. I mean, someone that seems to come to mind for me is your long relationship with Doug Barsley. But maybe there's other people as well that you'd like to talk a little bit about that people listening may have never heard of before. Yeah, um, they're... It's true. I mean, if it wasn't for these great customers, often who have done well in their own careers, um, if it wasn't for them coming in and ordering these great bottles or taking my advice on these great bottles of wine, you know, I wouldn't know these wines. So I am indebted to them all. Um, and out of, you know, out of all, many of those relationships, friendships have occurred. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier Don Stott, who's a really great collector, and maybe a lot of people have heard uh, of him. Uh, he is very generous and um, he is always looking to create a, a great environment for drinking great wine and, and people getting together. Um, Doug Barsley is a very, very passionate uh, wine collector. Um, I would, I would call him scholarly. You know, he might laugh if he hears that, but uh, he is very methodical um, with the way he um, approaches the history of wine. Um, he likes older, older burgundies. Uh, so he, digs in for a lot of the um, uh, historical notes that the domains have either had or, or didn't have. And he's currently writing a book about that kind of thing. Um, he's a member of the Conferie de Chevalier de Testavan, working at a kind of a, a national level, helping uh, influence the, the purchases that all the local chapters around uh, the country are, are buying. Um, um, again, I think, I think, um, these relationships have been forged just out of genuine passion and respect for each other. Um, there are a lot of customers whose names I won't mention just because I don't, I'm not comfortable to do that. And I, I also don't mention the names of my customers just because although there are a lot of megalomaniacs out there, not everybody wants to hear their name, you know, uh, or see their name written um, in the press. So, um, but those relationships are equally as important to me as the couple names that we just talked about. And uh, before we reveal too much, I, I suppose I should thank you for being here and and, oh. and and just admit to everyone here that you have always had a huge impact on my own career. I've always thought uh, extraordinarily well of, of what you managed to achieve, and it's been a model for me, and it's really an honor to have you here. Thank you. Oh, Levy, thank you very much. I appreciate the day. Tim Kopeck.
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.